morning and welcome to Rising. We are back. It is the year 2024, another year of rising. How exciting is that, Brianna? <laughs> it is exciting, Robbie, and I honestly cannot believe I'm still in D.C. for another election cycle. I moved here for the last one, and I guess I just can't quit you. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a fun year-ish. I don't know that I'm ready for another Trump-Biden showdown. It's like the uh, the sequel, the reboot that no one asked for. It's like Spider-Man 11 or something, yet Look, here we are. There's still some chance, diminishing as it is, that that's not the showdown we get. And at least on the Trump side of what would keep him from actually being the nominee, that is the subject of our first story today. President Trump's team has vowed to fight Maine Secretary of State after she barred the former president from the state's 2024 primary ballot. In the meantime, Shanna Bellows has suspended her ruling until the courts can rule on Trump's appeal. Now, Bellows says she was swatted this weekend over her decision. Here she is defending the ruling on MSNBC over the weekend. Let's watch. This decision is based on Maine law and the facts that were presented to me in the Section 336 challenge. It was really important to me uh, to look at the evidence presented in the public hearing and the law and the facts presented in the context of Maine law, sections 336, 337, and 443. Uh, it's a very detailed decision. Uh, we lay out uh, why under Maine law, the Secretary of State has the authority, indeed the obligation, I'm duty bound to make this determination. Uh, we also, I rather, um, laid out that the record demonstrates that in fact, the events of January 6, 2021, which were unprecedented and tragic, uh, were an insurrection uh, in the meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And finally, uh, in reviewing the facts presented, the evidence, uh, the law, the history, um, we determined uh, under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that Mr. Trump engaged in insurrection. Well, some new reporting in the New York Post shines light on Bellows, who is a registered Democrat, and her political ties. Bellows has visited the Biden White House twice uh, this year and met with President Biden on at least one occasion, according to the White House visitor logs. Now, in a Facebook post from March, Bellows shared that she was honored to meet the commander-in-chief. Meanwhile, over on CNN, even though a sympathetic legal analyst had some trouble defending Bellows' ruling. Let's check in. Is, were the processes, were these hearings fair? Did they comport with due process? And I think there's a question there with regard to what Maine did, because if you look at the hearing, and she details this in the, in the ruling, they heard from one fact witness, a law professor. She based her ruling on a lot of documents, but also YouTube clips, news reports, things that would never pass the bar in normal court. She's not a lawyer, by the way. It's a smartly written decision, clearly consulted with lawyers, but this is an unelected. She's chosen by the state legislature. She's elected by the chosen state legislature. By the, uh, chosen, elected by the legislature, but not democratically elected, not a knock. That's just the way it's set up in Maine. And this hearing, look, it doesn't have to be a criminal trial. We don't have to have all the protections. But I think the argument you'll hear from opponents is, one, not up to the states to do this. This is why we have all different decisions from all different states. And two, the procedures were not up to snuff. Yeah, so this, uh, while having the same effect, di uh, different from what went down in, in Colorado with at least a panel of judges um, weighing evidence, this is one single uh, 
political figure who's not even a, a, elected by the voters of the state, making the determination um, in her own judgment based on, sure, consulting with attorneys and reading documents that um, Trump is ineligible because he engaged in insurrection. Um, this, you know, this is an issue clearly that the Supreme Court is going to have to weigh in on to decide whether Trump's name can be on the ballot or not. Um, this, you know, patchwork of having states, you know, di different procedures in every state decide whether Trump's going to be on the ballot. I guess, it, I guess it doesn't matter until a swing state decides to keep, try, you know, if we're really going to play this game of Trump yeah. not appearing on every ballot. Uh, well, it matters in Michigan and uh, Pennsylvania and Georgia and Arizona and Nevada, et cetera. But uh, but is, is that really is that is that the country we are that a, a ri I, you know a, a rival political faction can find read the laws you know I'm not I'm not saying there's no there's absolutely no merit to um, interpreting the uh, the Fourteenth Amendment that way but is is are we really coming to the place where we're, we're not even letting the people decide in an abstract manner? Well, I think that yes, we should not let the people decide in the abstract if there are no factual ambiguities about whether or not someone committed an insurrection or is otherwise unqualified to be president. I think that uh, Bellas would be well within her rights and uh, uh, she would be rightly applying her authority if this were an issue of a 30-year-old running for president uh, who does not meet the qualification of being 35 or someone who was not a native-born citizen or one of the other things that preclude you from eligibility. The problem here is that she's making a factual determination that has not been decided in a trial context. And so it seems, frankly, premature, especially when you look at the language she used. Now, it's a 34-page opinion. So I don't want this to stand for the entirety of the argument that's made. But this is the operative paragraph where she concludes that Donald Trump has, in fact, um, participated in an insurrection. She says, I conclude that the record establishes that Mr. Trump, over the course of several months and culminating on January 6, 2021, used a false narrative of election fraud to inflame his supporters and direct them to the Capitol to prevent certification of the 2020 election and the peaceful transfer of power. I likewise conclude that Mr. Trump was aware of the likelihood for violence and at least initially supported its use, given he both encouraged it with incendiary rhetoric and took no timely action to stop it. Mr. Trump's occasional requests that rioters be peaceful and support law enforcement do not immunize his actions. A brief call to obey the law does not erase conduct over the course of months, culminating in his speech on the ellipse. Now, as we have mooted on this show often, I feel—my my perception is that the claims about the week's long efforts to fraudulently submit a fake slate of electors is a much stronger claim, demonstrating an intent to actually overthrow the election results in a way that could be considered a legitimate insurrection, a, a overturning democracy, undermining the voters' will in those uh, seven states that were relevant here. The speech done on January 6th that may or may not have influenced a crowd to storm the Capitol and break into the building and do all of what happened on January 6th, I think is a much weaker claim. And seeing how she's framed it here, emphasizing largely the January word speech, itself. the day, what happens on January 6th, I just think she's opening but herself up and opening the state up and opening Democrats up to claims that this really, truly is politically motivated because a factual determination has not yet been yeah. made about the merit of the insurrection charge. Well, yeah, but, but the reason... I, I think she or people are going to lean on the January 6th part is because insurrection—I mean, this is—I guess this is going to be decided in the Supreme Court what exactly insurrection means, but to a lot of people, when you look up the 
plain meaning of the word does involve like violence or the taking up of arms, whereas Trump's and and there was actually violence on January sixth. The the weeks leading up to January sixth, where I think you can make the claim, and certainly you know people prosecuting him in multiple districts are making the claim that his behavior violated the law, that he tried to remain in power illicitly. But now whether that stuff constitutes insurrection. It didn't, it didn't have. It, it might violate the law. It might be criminal. It might not be an insurrection because it didn't involve like actually gathering an armed forces to occupy buildings, do things of that nature. Whereas January 6 does have that component, but it, as you know, you and I yeah. have kind of agreed, it was it, it was a riot and was does not is not obviously planned or directed by Donald Trump in a way that was actually going to succeed at anything. Um, then it does get into his words and whether they're. They constitute um, encouragement to riot enough, and that like she's making that decision. Well, when he said, "Actually, do it peacefully. Don't do this," that's not quite enough. That starts to get into some very, you know, kind of referee calling it yeah. as they as they see the play. Uh, sort yeah, of. Yeah, I, I agree that insurrection very much implies some violence. Now, kind of abstractly, philosophically, it seems. I don't know, wrong, um, like, right. like a miscarriage of justice to say that someone trying to prevent an election result with a gun is not allowed to be president. Someone trying to have that exact same outcome by fraud is allowed to be president. That seems to go against the purpose of a, a law and rule like that. And maybe the founders didn't contemplate what it, you know, right. in a it world the without- founders, it's the people responding to the Civil oh, the War, Civil, right? right. They were, Sorry, and what the, they were responding to was actual people taking, you know, attacking forts belonging to the U.S. government, that kind of thing. Sure. So I can but see a, why in to them insurrection you matters. You can't imagine a mail, like a, an email or even physical mail getting from Michigan to Washington with a fake slate of electors in a timely manner, mm -hmm. much less electronic correspondence of fraudulent documents that could work to overturn the election process in the way that is being alleged against Donald Trump. You know, is this one of those things where we're trying to figure out what the what the founding fathers would have thought right. about machine guns if they had known or, you know, abortion if they had known or any of these kinds of things? You know, it, it does seem cross purposes with the law, but I do think there there people who are attempting to advance this argument do have to contend with the the kind of obvious implications of the word insurrection, the violent implications of the words insurrection. I, I will sure, say also, but that's though, what we. Well, go ahead. If there is an argument that something about the violence on one six was calculated to create some sort of delay that enabled the fraud that was happening in the preceding weeks, I think that again is a stronger argument. I think that's what's in a lot of Democrats' mind that this idea that there are insurrectionists with zip ties right. were going to tie up members of Congress and prevent them from thwarting the plan, which I think isn't really factually supported no, right. at all. The, the idea that it was deliberately calculated to do anything is yeah. actually a little fanciful yeah. when you, when, if you watch the events unfold, the, the chaos of it not being directed, it not being expected or anticipated, least of all by Donald Trump yeah. himself, um, who, who di didn't, was confused when it was going on and didn't quite know how to respond yeah. to it. Like, wasn't, he wasn't there to, you know, to, to take over as soon as they occupied his building to hoist the Trump flag, right? He was watching TV in, uh, uh, in, in his, uh, in his, in his, at his hotel, I think. Right. So. And I don't know that um, guillotining Mike Pence was going to further the agenda of Mike Pence certifying the wrong right. state of electors or passing it off to uh, the House. More rising right after this.
Israel plans to defend itself at the top court of the United Nations against allegations of engaging in genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. This comes after South Africa initiated the case at the International Court of Justice, asserting that the extent of death, destruction and the humanitarian crisis in Gaza qualifies as genocide under international law. The request from South Africa seeks an order for Israel to cease its attacks in Gaza, despite Israel's unusual dismissal of international cases as unfair. Its decision to respond indicates concerns about potential damage to its reputation. On Monday, Israel said it was withdrawing thousands of troops from other areas in a potential shift away from the massive air and ground operations that have devastated Gaza. Israeli government spokesperson Eli Levy had this to say in response to South Africa. The state of Israel emphatically condemns South Africa's decision to play advocate for the devil and to make itself criminally complicit with the perpetrators of the October 7 massacre. On October 7, South Africa openly aligned itself with the Hamas rapist regime when it blamed Israel for Hamas's violation of the ceasefire and covered up Hamas's crimes against humanity. It is now aiding and abetting that machinery of genocide. Collaborating with the perpetrators of genocide is, alas, not new to South Africa, which backed Omar al-Bashir after he was indicted for genocide in Darfur. However, international law expert Francis Boyle told Democracy Now! that South Africa has a strong case. Let's watch. Based on my careful review of all the documents so far submitted by the Republic of South Africa, uh, I believe South Africa will win an order against Israel to cease and desist from committing all acts of genocide uh, against the Palestinians. And then we will have an official determination by the International Court of Justice itself, the highest uh, legal authority in the United Nations system, that genocide is going on. And under Article 1 of the Genocide Convention, all contracting parties, 153 states, will then be obliged, quote, to prevent, unquote, the genocide by Israel against the Palestinians. Meanwhile, in the Red Sea, Iran deployed its Al Bors destroyer into the Red Sea just one day after the U.S. targeted and killed 10 Houthi fighters who are attacking commercial vessels in the disputed waters that separate Africa from the Middle East. Joining us now to discuss is Palestinian-American political analyst Omar Badar. Welcome, Omar. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start by um, getting into the implications of uh, the charges uh, South Africa is making against Israel in this international criminal court. Uh, I know that some folks have been pushing for this specifically, unlike the United States. This is one of these rare exceptions where Israel is party to certain treaty obligations where it can be brought to justice before a court like this. What is likely to be the outcome here, uh, given that there is some real possibility for accountability? Yeah, look, the case on Maris, there's no question that Israel is guilty of exactly what's being charged. I mean, it's quite plain for anybody who wants to see we have this pretense, I think, particularly in mainstream American media, that Israel is engaged in a war against Hamas and that Palestinian civilian casualties are essentially collateral damage. And there's this big debate about whether, you know, is Israel doing enough to protect them or not or, or whatever. But in reality, this is actually a war against the civilian population in Gaza. They are the intended target of Israel's bombardment. 
Um, it's quite clear when you look at the extent of the devastation, the genocidal rhetoric that Israeli leaders have used uh, at, at documents that revealed that, you know, people who are actively involved in these operations talking about the fact that the strategy is to induce a shock and, and a level of despair among the civilian population and watching that play out in the fact that Israel is bombing uh, safe areas, designating certain areas as safe zones for people to go and then dropping massive bombs on them. What's what's quite clear here is that Israel is trying to make Gaza unlivable for the Palestinian population, and that absolutely fits the definition of genocide. And you look at the rates of at which Palestinian children are being killed, journalists are being killed, medics, UN workers, everything is off the charts. This is not a normal war, quote-unquote war. Um, the, the only problem, though, at the end of the day is that even if we do get the justice that we want out of this process. Ultimately, it's going to be you and what army is going to really hold Israel accountable. Because as long as Israel holds um, the backing of the United States that is completely unconditional militarily, diplomatically, and, and in every other way, then it looks like Israel will be largely able to avoid accountability anyway. Um, and the best case scenario here, which is not negligible, I think it would still be obviously a useful thing, um, to increase the diplomatic isolation of Israel globally as a result of engaging in this genocidal violence against Palestinians in Gaza. I mean, you say this is not a normal war, but it, see, it looks very normal to me. The Israeli government is um, destroying buildings. I mean, in the course of, what, in World War II, we leveled Japanese city after Japanese city. We firebombed Tokyo even before um, the, the bomb was used. We destroyed city after city in Germany. It, it actually it does look like conventional warfare with, unfortunately, a tremendous amount of collateral damage given the level, the densely populated area and, and everything. And I, I, I do think we should discuss um, ways to limit civilian casualties, and you could certainly fault the Israeli government for not doing enough on that front. But it, in what way is this not normal? This is just what warfare looks like, and we're not as accustomed to it as we used to be. Look, I mean, certainly one can say that the way we used to do warfare in the past was a lot more brutal than it is today. But there is an added element here, is that this is not the goal of this war is to bring Palestinians down to their knees and to accept to live as a prisoner population into perpetuity. That's that's the fundamental reality. The, the, these comparisons that get made about you know Japan and Germany and, and, and whatever else, the idea was to achieve a military victory in order to then allow room for those countries to actually develop and thrive and for the populations to have a prospect for a better future. This is not at all Israel's plan for Gaza. The idea is to bring them down to their knees and to pummel them into submission and then from there, the goal is to basically just have them live in squalor or drive them out. Ethnic cleansing is effectively what they're trying to do. So no, this is not a normal war by any stretch of the imagination. It's not just the rate of killing that we're witnessing that dwarfs anything else that we've seen in the last 20 years. You know, when you look at Russia's onslaught in Ukraine, killing nearly 500 children in the entire first year, which everybody recognizes as pretty significant, massive and indiscriminate, and yet Israel has killed more than 10,000 Palestinian children in the course of three months. Something here is is um, can't honestly fit the definition of normal. And I think it's it's a scale of a crime that does merit these uh, charges being brought about genocidal intent and action in, in Gaza. Well, but to, to compare the two, I mean, Russia is not trying to overthrow the Ukrainian government. It's trying to... Um, make independent or seize for itself um, some of the territory of the country at borders, where Israel is trying to eliminate um, the regime of the disputed territory, Hamas. And given the tremendous difficulty in doing that, I mean, you might even say it's impossible and they should stop trying and we should um, come to some other um, uh, 
objective in the in in Gaza, but they're you know they're they're trying they're undertaking a project that um, the Russian government has not declared for Ukraine. Robbie, just for starters, I think we should be clear about the fact that this is not disputed territory. It is occupied territory. The only people disputing the status of the territories is basically Israel. Um, occupied territories, Israel does not have the right to defend an occupation. It has the right to, quote unquote, defend itself. But Israel doesn't have the right to defend itself in an occupation any more than a home intruder breaking into some place with a gun has the right to claim self-defense against the people living in that home. The reality is Israel has been imposing a, a suffocating siege on top of the Gaza Strip that has made life very difficult for people living there. Palestinians in Gaza before October 7th were not allowed to have an airport, not allowed to have a seaport, not allowed to trade with the outside world, where unemployment was at 50%, where people had no prospect for a better future for their children, and they were told you have to live that way under permanent Israeli siege and apartheid until the end of time, and that is simply unacceptable. And if there is then a terrorist attack as a result of Israeli policies um, that have been suffocating the Palestinian population and, and denying them their most basic rights for decade after decade, Israel doesn't get to just engage in this genocidal violence against the civilian population in the name of trying to change their government. And change their government to what? Another pliant government that is then going to put up with permanent Israeli siege and occupation? The situation is untenable. If our rhetoric about believing in freedom and human rights means anything, it has to demand not just an end to the current onslaught in Gaza. Ceasefire is an incredibly tepid demand. It is ultimately about holding Israel accountable for its decades of siege and occupation and suffocation of the people in Gaza and the endless war crimes they've committed against them that are frankly worse than October 7th, even before October 7th, in terms of successive Israeli massacres, dropping prohibited weapons on top of people in Gaza, killing children by the hundreds. That is not a status quo that anybody can put up with. And then to say that the aggressors have the right to engage in even greater massacres in order to change the political reality in, in, in the Palestinian territories uh, is not morally defensible by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's also worth noting that some of the comparisons that keep getting brought up about warfare prior to World War II, it's notable that we have to go back that far because after World War II is when our humanitarian, our national humanitarian law framework was created in order to shift away from the barbarity that was commonplace to war before that period. And that's the whole point of the United Nations and the, uh, various international law frameworks that very specifically make the kinds of behavior that we've seen in Gaza, the dropping of white phosphorus, the collective punishment of denying food and power and fuel and those kinds of um, life-sustaining things uh, against international law. Before we go, Omar, I want to ask you to respond to um, uh, Mr. Levy's comments. He specifically uh, noted characterized uh, pa Palestinian, Palestinians or Hamas, I don't want to mischaracterize uh, him there, um, as having a, uh, a, a, a rapist government. And I wanted you to give you an opportunity to respond to the way that those kinds of claims have been leveraged uh, by Israel in the last uh, few weeks perhaps to justify the ongoing bombardment of the people of Gaza. Yeah, it is It is completely distasteful demagoguery, and it's quite transparent. Obviously, sexual violence does happen in, in war, in acts of terrorism, and in, in many other situations. And the Israeli military has quite a significant record of it as well, starting with the founding of the state of Israel, in which Palestinian women were subjected to rape, by, by militias that were ethnically cleansing Palestinian areas to create the state of Israel. So this, this kind of rhetoric, honestly, it's, it's reprehensible and distasteful and is obviously just an attempt to cover for the ongoing atrocities that Israel is actually engaging with itself right now. 
That's the reality, is that anybody who looks at any atrocities that were committed by Palestinian militants against Israeli civilians, they're universally condemned. And the problem right now is that we live in an atmosphere and a climate in which Israeli atrocities against Palestinian civilians, the weaponized starvation and thirst um, of an entire population and the spreading of disease and the indiscriminate bombardment is actually defended by our government. That is the fundamental problem here. And if this is simply an effort to deflect from far greater atrocities that the Israeli military is currently and actively committing, uh, and frankly, nobody should fall for it. Obviously, every person of conscience should condemn um, any acts of, of violence of any sort against civilians anywhere. But ultimately, the Israeli military knows very, very well that there isn't anything particularly unique about violence from Palestinians. They know that, in fact, literally every single kind of violence, anything that you could say about Hamas having committed against Israelis, Israel has committed against Palestinians at a far, far greater scale. And if, again, this sounds provocative and inflammatory perhaps, but it's actually technically true. If we define terrorism as violence against civilians in order to achieve political ends, then there's no question that the largest terrorist organization in all of Palestine and Israel is in fact the Israeli government and that its military wing, which is known as the Israeli military, is guilty of war crimes on a scale that we have never seen in that region. And if we're going to be serious about standing up to war crimes and crimes against humanity and atrocities of all kind, it starts with accountability for the Israeli military, which receives unconditional military funding from the United States and unconditional diplomatic protection that simply is at odds with the values that we claim to hold about freedom, equality, and human rights. You just said it was distasteful to, reprehensible, I believe, to call Hamas a rapist organization, and then you subsequently called the state of Israel just that. It sounds like you're saying, I think you explicitly said, Israel's crimes on this front are worse than Hamas's. Does that mean you accept yeah. the reporting from The New York Times, or you, you disbelieve it, about the widespread sexual violence that occurred on October 7th that was perpetrated by Hamas fighters, um, The New York Times citing the conditions of the bodies, um, people being women being held at the, the music festival and other ways found in horrific conditions, their underwear taken, that kind of thing. It, it's reprehensible to call Hamas a rapist organization for that. This is, uh, Robbie, just for clarity's sake, the Israeli government has engaged in very extensive lying about what actually took place on October 7th. We know that for an absolute fact. Now, there is certainly quite possible that sexual violence had been committed. There are some indications that, in fact, it has. There is no indication that it had been systemic or that it was basically ordered. You know, it, it, it was not um, a deliberate strategy that was set from the beginning. There's certainly a, a, a very likely possibility that individual acts of sexual violence had actually been committed. But to use that to try to describe Hamas as worse than ISIS and a rapist government and whatever, coming from a government whose atrocities are far greater is plain hypocrisy, pure and simple. That is simply the point. And the reality of the matter is, is that what are we talking about here ultimately? Is it about what each individual thinks about any particular crime and what words we use and whatnot? Or is it about trying to achieve a better outcome and a better future? And if we're focused actually about being helpful and producing a better outcome, then we have to look at the fundamental driving causes of violence of all sorts. And the fundamental driving cause is Israel's occupation that has gone on for decade after decade, denying Palestinians their freedom and any prospect for a better future. It's really no different than looking at what happened during apartheid in South Africa. The fact that the ANC was committing atrocities and, and blowing up 
uh, civilian areas. It's no different than any situation of oppression in the history of the entire world, where sometimes the oppressed engage in acts of violence that are distasteful and indefensible. But people of conscience who are serious about trying to produce a better future and putting an end to this kind of violence need to start with the driving causes and allowing the government that is driving this violence by pursuing policies that ensure that we're going to see violence uh, perpetuate in, in forever effectively to allow them to try to control the narrative and, and use inflammatory language to describe the atrocities of the oppressed, but not their own greater atrocities is something that we ought to reject. Omar Badar, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Hundreds of sealed court documents pertaining to late sex offender Jeffrey Epstein are set to be made public this week, and many prominent associates of Epstein's named in court, including Prince Andrew and former President Bill Clinton, will allegedly be revealed. Logs kept by one of Epstein's pilots showed Bill Clinton and his entourage flew extensively on Epstein's jet to international destinations in 2002 and 2003, but none of the available records so far prove Clinton made a trip to Epstein's island. Clinton was identified as John Doe 36 among the 170 names expected to be revealed in the files. John Doe 36 is mentioned more than 50 times in the filings per The Washington Times. Hmm. Well, former Fox News host Tucker Carlson is set to interview Jeffrey Epstein's brother, Mark Epstein, about his inability to see the hospital records from the night his brother died in prison. Let's watch. As of right now, you're telling me you can't find the PCR report? Not for the 10th of August, 2019, no. Not in, it's not in the fire department database. I don't know why. If it's supposed to be there, we'll find out. But first, you've got to get the letters of administration before you can take them anywhere. Yeah, you see, because the date on here is the, the 10th of 19. It's the day they found him, they took him, and, they, and he was dead. Well, then they might have taken him directly to the morgue. So no, he was in the hospital. I have photographs of him in the hospital, too. Oh, because you see the fire department personnel there, that doesn't mean they provided documentation. They told else. me they did. I spoke to them. Yeah. And they were the ones who suggested I get the PCR report. Mm -hmm. Well, well, they're saying one thing, but the computer is saying something else. I understand the stakes are much higher, obviously, but listening to that, sound doesn't that sound like every interaction you have with bureaucrats at the DMV or anything where you got told one thing, but it's different in the computer and it's different this way, which is not to suggest that there isn't anything nefarious going, around, going, uh, going on there, but also that um, that's the general experience most people have when dealing with officials in that position. I mean, sure, but it's also true that oftentimes the kind of administrative... Uh, failures or ambiguity are used to cover up legitimate sure. failures of these institutions, which are tasked with keeping records for exactly these kinds of instances. And I, I do, you know, if if you have a very high-profile client uh, uh, subject like Jeffrey Epstein was, I don't think it's uh, you know conspiratorial to ask questions about why someone who should have had the most eyes on him and the most security and who should have had the best most secure paperwork, and all of the I's dotted and T's crossed have so many failures that have compounded on each other when 
there are so many very famous and very yeah. rich people implicated in finding out more about his schemes. It's the old maliciousness versus incompetence kind of uh, Yes, well, there's only so much debate. incompetence that I think can be credibly mm. excused, and I think that's, that's part of why— That's where we might disagree. <laughs> well, <laughs> We're talking about government employees here. Uh, you know, and the police. I think a lot of what is described as government and police incompetence actually is maliciousness. Mm. Uh, so the question here is whether or not there's going to be anything newly revealing about what's come out. As we've um, already discussed, it is known that people like um, uh, Bill Clinton, Prince Andrew, were implicated through other court filings, from um, other flight logs that have already been revealed. The question is whether or not these 50 uh, approximately 50 other mentions of Bill Clinton in the documents gives some additional color as to what his relationship was with Epstein. Now, Bill Clinton has said that he never visited the famous island, uh, Little St. James. Uh, Virginia Guifre said uh, differently that he had visited the island. It would be interesting to see if any of these additional records cast any light on the truthfulness of their conflicting reports Maybe she here. saw the painting and it was so lifelike she thought it was actually Bill Clinton. The Remember? painting? The, there's this, no, so there was a painting of Bill Clinton as a woman in, uh, on the island in, in Jeffrey Epstein's uh, residence. Google it, it'll, it'll come up. I'll, I'll show there's it to you after. There's a picture of Bill Clinton uh, as uh, a woman. No, a painting, a work of art of Bill Clinton. Um, commissioned by, it was Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein had it commissioned, I, I believe, yeah. In, in the uh, in the residence, so uh, he was able to get Bill Clinton on the phone. Oh, I see. You see yeah. Well, it's Bill Clinton in a in a blue off the shoulder dress with red heels on. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's uh, he was able to get Jeffrey Epstein was able to get Bill Clinton on the phone very easily. So his associations with Clinton are very well established. I think what would be interesting is to finally learn, frankly, some other names or learn if there was more. You know, just the casual involvement. You know, people like. I mean, I'm not picking on him to name it, like Noam Chomsky, who had very, you know, some kind of limited legal interaction with uh, Epstein having to do with his will or something like that. How many people like that are there? And, and are any of those people actually on the plane or actually visiting the island or are involved? Is the government of the Virgin Islands? That would be most interesting. We know, for instance, that Stacey Plaskett sought out Epstein specifically as a donor to her campaign, the delegate of the Virgin Islands. We know that he tried to have the, the sex offender laws of the Virgin Islands ridden so he would be yeah. less ensnared. Um, I'd like to know about some of those connections, particularly from the period um, after he was already a known sex offender, had already been convicted, a period in which his associations with figures like Bill Gates were still were still quite ongoing, his associations with uh, Bank of America figures still very ongoing. Um, and that's the really damning period. Obviously, the, the involvement with Bill Clinton from much earlier is, uh, yeah. is interesting and is of public note, but is somewhat um, somewhat well-documented already. Yeah, in some ways, we already know what is so scandalous about this, which is that Jeffrey Epstein, politics aside, was very close to Donald Trump. He was close to Bill Clinton. He was close to all of these extremely affluent and powerful people, Bill Gates. And the scandal really does seem to be less about the specifics of it, but the fact that this was a man who was notorious for certain behaviors, even before his conviction, rumor, in the rumor mill, which did not cause anybody to object to spending time with him. Those rumors were confirmed around, what, 2008, 2009, around his first conviction. And that still didn't keep many people from freely associating with him in public, inviting them to weddings, cavorting around, doing all those sorts of things. Um, you know, Jelaine Maxwell being at Hillary Clinton's, uh, Chelsea Clinton's wedding, for instance. So I, I, in some ways, I think that these additional 
um, stories about more reveal, more reveal, almost gives the impression that there's not enough here to be really condemnatory right. of right off the bat and for us to ask really serious questions about why there's this elite sector of our society that seems to have no consequences for engaging in some of the most illegal and purient um, behavior known to man. Right. We'd also be remiss not to mention that flight logs reveal that former President Donald Trump also allegedly took at least seven trips on Epstein's private plane between 1993 and 1997. Back in 2002, Trump allegedly said Epstein was a lot of fun to be with. Hmm. Donald Trump in 2002 said of Epstein, he's a lot of fun to be with. It's even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. Yeah, and I see a lot of, frankly, uh, people online who are very, release the Epstein client list, very uh, obsessed with getting to the, supposedly getting to the bottom of the Epstein issue, uh, you know, totally covering for Trump on this when um, it's clear he had at least some casual association, perhaps more limited than some other figures. But it, it goes to show you that Jeffrey Epstein's game it was not partisan, uh, was simply attaching himself to powerful people, to uh, worming his way into their lives by offering these—he uh, I mean, was extremely wealthy—by offering the the plane rides and the and the <laughs> invitations to his island, where these you know much more um, horrific crimes were going on. And I think people want to know what, frankly, what was the level of involvement of some of these very powerful figures? Is there some? I don't know that it will ever be as simple as, you know, here's a list of the people Jeffrey Epstein provided underage girls to, and here's the list of people who had sex with them. People, if there is such a list, want to see it and want those people to go to jail, not just Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. And that is why the circumstances of his death are uh, under so much scrutiny, because yes. in lieu of that list, there was only Jeffrey Epstein's testimony, which we will obviously never get now. More Rising right after this. The not very notable demographic of Donald Trump supporters who are also big Green Day fans, well, they're embarking down the boulevard of broken dreams <laughs> right now because their favorite rock band made a subtle change to the lyrics of their hit song, American Idiot, to strike out against former President Donald Trump and his, quote, MAGA agenda. Watch. Conservatives mostly reacted with amusement to Green Day's antics. Right-wing comedy site Not The Bee wrote, Green Day tried to prove they're still cool by changing their lyrics to slam the MAGA agenda on TV last night, to which Elon Musk responded, Green Day goes from raging against the machine to milk-toastedly raging for it. I am not mad. I am not mad. Uh, but some took it a bit more seriously. Texas Congressman Dan Crenshaw posted on Instagram, I just hate it when big artists have the chance to bring Americans together and instead divide them. Why? You're a singer. I don't really care about your policy opinions unless it has to do with music industry regulations. Just make people happy with your music instead of spouting off. I like this version of stick to sports. Stick to music <laughs> industry regulations. Of course, the problem, Robbie, is one. that as many people on the internet have pointed out, American uh, uh, Green Day has always been a political band. Yeah, the song was initially a anti-Bush 
protest song. Um, they were well, they've been big for a long time, but American Idiot brought them uh, renewed attention and fame during the Bush years. Um, I was a big fan of this album and generally the music from this time period. I am a Green Day fan to uh, to admit that fully. It's you, uh, you're the, you're the uh, but I right, I, but I didn't. Well, and I was not particular. I, I this was this is going to my high school years. Um, I came to be not a particular fan of Bush foreign policy, so I, I, I came to I think I liked the music before I. I was influenced in that direction politically. So maybe it's all them. Maybe they converted me to uh, opposition <laughs> to uh, what was then the Bush agenda. Yeah. I mean, it is, uh, you know, one can comment on how maybe they see those as the same thing, even though our conservatives would think it's night and day between Trump and Bush. Um, there's the no love for Bush among conservatives, among the actual, the MAGA agenda. The, this the, is the criticism funny thing. is that they're making it political. The right. criticism is, why are you yeah, politicizing the song when the original lyric of the song is, I'm not a part of a redneck agenda? Right. I mean, I, I don't—that's not my favorite use of phrase or whatever, but Well, the, the line before that song, is, maybe that—maybe I'm the F yeah, America. Uh, yes. Which Saying is, that, it, like, maybe I'm—he uses the, right. a pejorative for gay people. He's reclaiming to, it. Yes. Yeah. And, you know. And, and the, song, the song is explicitly—I'm sorry, it talks about biased media. The whole song, yeah. every lyric— is a political critique. Yeah. So the clear consternation is not about it being politicized, but be, but people being reminded that it's politicized in a way that's against your political agenda, and that these people aren't being honest about it is is kind of funny. It, it's it's giving what is the meme, um, the corncob meme? I am not owned. I am not owned. As I slowly shrink and turn into a corncob. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, it. it, it you look pretty foolish being bent out of shape about this because it's an explicitly political band. That album is explicitly political. I think the next song on the album is Jesus of Suburbia, which is like an eight-minute rant about a lot of things, many of them political. Um, I think Boulevard of Broken Dreams is probably my favorite song from that album. You're I a also real like Holiday. David. I was a huge fan of this album. That's I really had this funny. album. Um, well, I love you know alt rock of the of the '90s and early aughts, which is when this yeah, dates from. I, I actually I, I like their CD you. Warning. Even before, that was a I grew up listening to that. My parents would play that CD all the time. <laughs> the things I'm learning about you today, Robbie. <laughs> so, so someone tweeted out that there was a Rock Against Bush compilation album that was put out. Mm -hmm. Apparently, there were multiple volumes, and on volume two, Green Day's favorite son was the first song on that album. I don't know if you're familiar with that one and the political nature of it, but apparently it was political enough to be included on a Rock Against mm. Bush compilation album as a picture of George Bush covering his ears as an amplifier blasts yeah. uh, progressive rock, I don't know, yeah. behind him. I mean, it is, it is funny to me, though, but if there's anybody who still has, like, a lot of affection for George W. Bush, they're not people who like Trump and the MAGA agenda, right? Lynn, is Lynn Cheney now rocking out to, to, to Green Day yeah, because but, it's it's attacking Robbie, the MAGA that's, that's agenda? That's a little bit of sophistry. People are allowed to avoid their, uh, to evolve their politics and whatnot, but the mm -hmm. entire Republican Party that was sitting around and voting in 2020, uh, 2004 overwhelmingly for George Bush are largely the same, I mean, eight Age changes and right. stuff like that and deaths and people being born and getting old enough to vote are largely the exact same people who voted for, or to vote for the Republican nominee, Donald Trump, in all likelihood. Well, sure, but there's been a, there has been a bit of a, not enough, in my view, at least a rhetorical evolution to some degree on foreign policy stuff, which was sure. a major thrust of the, of the Bush era criticism and that the, the Iraq war fever pitch um, kind of 
Iraq war fever breaking around that time, if I recall. Yeah. So one one Twitter user pointed out, as, as we've been doing, saying right wingers finding out that Green Day hates them is like when they found out that Rage Against the Machine hates them, which was like when they found out that Neil, Neil Young and Bruce Springsteen hate them, which is like when they found out that they're Wives and kids hate them. I'm not. That's, <laughs> that's, that's getting into mean. a different, a different uh, territory. But people have pointed out a lot of those folks. Adele uh, uh, asked that Donald Trump not uh, play Rolling in the Deep or Skyfall at his rallies. Aerosmith, uh, the Beatles, Springsteen, Clarence Clearwater Revival. A ton and ton of musical groups have asked that uh, Donald Trump or other conservatives. This is why it's all Kid Rock and everything. You can all, you're, you're limited to Kid Rock, um, like Mumford and Sons or something. Um, I think one of them was a little Jordan Peterson curious. Oh really? Uh, it's a it's a it's a very short list. Very sad. Yeah, and, and remember, mo more recently, and in the context of this ongoing presidential cycle, Vivek Ramaswamy was asked by Eminem's camp to no longer uh, rap, was it Lose Yourself, the way that he had done it But you can't one. stop that man from <laughs> rapping. You can try, but you will fail. Well, it is interesting. I mean, some, some conservatives have basically said, and I think this was kind of the tone of um, Dan Crenshaw's remarks, too, um, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you making it political? But of course, there does seem to be this double standard for someone like Kid Rock, who openly has a certain kind of politics, mm -hmm. who's joining in the campaign against Bud Light, which you could also say, oh, beer should be bringing us together. Why are you polarizing I mean, people over I do. Th I think there's a difference between uh, conservatives get annoyed when they feel like politics is injected into something that doesn't need to have political undertones at all. And then, of course, but then they cheer when politics are injected and it happens to be their politics. Right. They would say, well, this is this is turnabout is fair play, and we're we're never this never happens. So when it happens, we can celebrate it. But the more thoughtful idea is that does everything have to become political? Can some things like sports or whatever remain unpolitical? But Green Day was inherently political from the get go, so it's it, it makes no sense to be well, so bent out of shape music, about that. Music, so much American music in particular, which has been overwhelmingly influenced by the creative outputs of black Americans who are responding directly to their political conditions. We're talking about the American musical art forms like jazz, mm. blues, rock and roll. The idea that those kinds of songs would be apolitical. I mean, the original um, Big Mama Thornton version of Hound Dog is an, an inherently political song about someone's relationship with men, gender politics, all of those kinds of things, poverty. So, I mean, it, it does also kind of miss the point of why people create art in the first place to, de to demand it be, I don't know, like, oops, I did it again and nothing else. No shade to Britney, that's a bop. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and then if, if the lyrics of oops, I did it again got changed to Oops, I maggot again, as yeah, we're about that, to in 2024 or something. But that isn't even I don't know. what it is. America, the American idiot. Right, right. No, I know, I'm like, I know, I'm, I agree. But if it was, if it was inherently sure. unpolitical and it was transformed yeah. for a gimmick, sure. for for clapping seals sure. in the mainstream media to applaud. Over, I just, I, in fact, I saw um, uh, Countdown guy uh, Olberman, huge fan of ours, <laughs> as I think called on the hill to fire us both for our uh, Ukrainian commentary. Yeah. Keith Olberman, I was watching his uh, video. I, God, I find him so darkly funny. It's just entertaining <laughs> to hear the sound of his voice. But he was like, and and the MAGA bubble being pierced by Green Day. How strange, <laughs> but it happened. Like, you don't know who Green Day is either then, man. Like, that is not surprising. And it's just like being cheered. Like, th this is... You know, this is beginning of the end. He goes, he's off the ballot. Green Day's coming for him. Your your wildest fantasies are being fulfilled. Yeah, and it's it worth remembering that back in the early aughts, these kind of criticisms weren't without risk. 
I think one of the few genuine cancellations that really ever happened was the Dixie Chicks calling out. Um, she passed away over the holidays. Oh, did she really? I didn't know that. Pretty sure. Yes. Which which Dixie Chick? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. They, don't, they, they go by the chicks now. My Laura apologies. Lynch. Yeah, she uh, she was in a car crash uh, oh, no. December 26th. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, I mean, they they showed a lot of bravery for criticizing a George Bush at a time post 9/11 when. There was a lot of consensus, in, even among liberals, in backing him uh, in his foreign intervention that was ostensibly in response to 9-11. And um, so I, I credit all of these people who do choose to be political when they don't have to, not in a revisionist way to score points you know, years later, but really who, in the moment when it was hard, chose to put aside potential financial gain for themselves and to create a broader audience and to pick a side. Um, so kudos to Green Day for doing that then. Um, rest in peace uh, and thoughts to the Dixie, the chicks and their and their families. Mm. And uh, stick around. We'll have more rising for you right after this. All right. Well, it is officially the year of the next presidential election, 2024. And at the top of that year, things aren't looking very good for Joe Biden. Black, Hispanic, and young voters are abandoning Biden, according to the Roper Center. Biden holds just 63 percent of black voters, a decline from the 87 percent he claimed in 2020. And Biden is trailing Donald Trump among Hispanic voters, 39 percent for Trump and 34 percent for Biden. And among voters under 35 years old, Trump leads Biden 37 to 33 percent. This comes as Democrats argue that President Biden is being underestimated. Uh, Kessler, co-founder of the centrist think tank Third Way, said, quote, Biden faces challenges going into 2024, but I'm baffled by seemingly smart people writing his chances off. Those smart people are just looking at the numbers, friend. <laughs> Meanwhile, other polling shows that more Americans want the government to pay attention to foreign policy issues this year. 38% of Americans identified foreign policy as one of the top five issues that the government should tackle in 2024. According to a new poll from the Associated Press, uh, for pub uh, uh, this is more than double the percentage of Americans who listed foreign policy as their top issue in 2023, per The Hill. Joining us now to weigh in is host of the Savvy Sabs podcast and co-host at the Revolutionary Blackout Network, Sabrina Salvati. Welcome, Sabrina. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. So are you one of these pundits who should know better, who's counting out Joe Biden's chances? How dare we all lose faith, I guess. I guess so. I mean, for me, I'm just looking at the data. I'm looking at the numbers. I also saw a segment from MSNBC recently that showed that Joe Biden's approval rating is the lowest among uh, presidents from the 90s and now uh, the 2000 era uh, going into a reelection. And we know that presidents that have had lower approval ratings uh, did not win reelection. So I think what's what's really important for people to understand if we want to look at the issue with Joe Biden losing black voters and Hispanic voters. I believe this particular segment of the population is surrounded by the issue of immigration. So one of the things that I have seen, I've seen voters in Chicago and New York City, African-American voters very vocal about the fact that migrants have come into their cities and Democrat politicians are giving them benefits that they have never given to African-Americans who actually grew up in those cities uh, and did not come in by way of the border. Uh, so that's that's one of the issues that I think has been a recurring issue uh, ever since uh, previously under 
Joe Biden's election since migrants have been coming in. That's one of the, the, the big issues that I've been hearing from African-American voters, particularly in those uh, cities. Uh, there's also this issue of the fact that you do have organizations like ADOS that also has been addressing the issue of giving African-American descendants of slavery reparations in this country, which has not happened. Uh, this is not the U.S. government has not seemed to find a way to atone for slavery for African-Americans uh, in this country, but they have given reparations to other groups. For example, they gave reparations to Japanese-Americans that were a part of the Japanese internment camps, and that actually happened under Ronald Reagan. So now we're hearing African-American voters that typically would vote for the Democratic Party become more vocal about the fact that they feel as though we are the last ones on the list when it comes to the agenda for the voters, for the American people, and that other groups are pushed uh, ahead of African-Americans. So we're at the bottom. When it comes to the Hispanic voters, I've heard a lot of them be vocal about the fact, again, with the immigration issue, they're complaining that it's not fair that benefits are being offered to migrants when some of them, like they came into the country legally and they did it the right way. So they feel like it's just not fair that those benefits are given to migrants. But this all points back to the foreign policy issue. The reason why we have immigration issue in this country that we have right now has to do with the U.S. government's involvement in foreign affairs in these countries. The U.S. government has implemented coups in these countries. They've overthrown leaders. They've stolen their resources. They've implemented sanctions on these countries. They've destroyed their economy. And that's why you have the influx, influx of people coming in uh, uh, at the border. So I think in order to fix the immigration issue in this country, we have to fix the foreign policy decisions that the U.S. government has made in those countries. Uh, on Friday, Joe Biden, his administration, went around Congress to approve uh, emergency weapon sale to Israel that includes projectile and projectiles, rather, and uh, related other uh, weaponry. Uh, many people were pointing to that Friday news drop. Those of you in, in the news are familiar with how these things work, is that oftentimes uh, governments will put out news that they hope to get buried on a Friday uh, to get lost in the weekend traffic. Um, and the reason why people might find that to be unpopular is exactly what you were alluding to there, uh, Savvy, the idea that there does seem to be these workarounds. He can go around Congress. He can do executive orders when it comes to the agenda items that he is personally invested in, in this case, uh, continuing to fund Israel and its uh, bombardment of Gaza, but not certain other policy priorities that would go to the benefit of domestic uh, Americans, including uh, student debt, a $15 minimum wage, and other policy priorities, that the PRO Act, that we were told over the last uh, three years were impossible because of Congress. What role do you think his failure to deliver substantively on some of those pol uh, policy promises from 2020? is affecting the shift we're seeing in voters from 2020 to now, keeping in mind that issues like reparations and the like have been uh, long, uh, ongoing, long-time concerns uh, among certain groups without seeing the shift that we're seeing now between 2020 and 2024. I think that Joe Biden made campaign, campaign promises that he, he knew he was not going to fulfill. One of the promises he made, you mentioned student loan cancellation. Uh, he did promise to cancel student loan debt for students that went to HBCUs. So we saw that that didn't happen as well. And at the same time, we have seen Joe Biden's administration give billions of dollars to Ukraine. Uh, before the war uh, with Israel and Gaza, the US government was already giving Israel $3.8 billion every year. 
And I want to remind everyone that in Israel, they have health care for everyone. They have free college for everyone. In this country, we don't have health care for everyone, but our government can give $3.8 billion to another country every year. Our government can give Zelensky billions of dollars. Uh, again, another country. Uh, where is all this money going? So people are seeing a lot of money go out the door under Joe Biden's presidency that maybe before people weren't paying attention to foreign policy decisions, but now they are given the economic situation of a lot of Americans in this country and all the money that is going out to other countries. Yeah, depending on how you phrase this, this is actually, frankly, something that um, annoys many independent and conservative voters uh, that it seems like every other country's national security is a greater priority than, than domestic issues. Obviously, there's considerable disagreement over, um, you know, what's going on in Israel, but there is a very healthy suspicion of Biden and, frankly, of previous Republican administrations that were very concerned about goings-on in the rest of the world. Um, plenty of Republican leadership were very supportive of funding Ukraine, even as the base absolutely revolted against the idea and finally persuaded some of Republican leaders to take up um, that cause. So it, it's interesting to see—I mean, how much do you think— Trump will actually, you know, benefit from this dissatisfaction with Joe Biden. We actually haven't heard from Trump a lot lately on substantive questions, particularly on foreign policy questions. And it's not, it's not totally clear what he would do differently with Israel and Ukraine, even though, you know, in the, in the past he was, has been a voice for restraint, for instance, with the Iraq war. I, I think you could certainly fault the way he actually um, governed on that front, was not very committed to a restrained foreign policy. But, um, but is it the case that the voters you're describing, young people, black people, Hispanic people, are they actually going to say, you know, Trump might be offering something closer on foreign policy to, to what we want, or is it merely the case of we're done with Joe Biden and we're going to look at third parties? It's a little bit of both. Uh, some voters have said that they're going to support Donald Trump. Some black voters have said that they're going to support Donald Trump because of the immigration issue and also because of all the money that's going to Ukraine. I think Donald Trump in his last interview, I think he said he would have handled that situation differently. So some of them have said they're going to support him and some of them have said that they're going to support third party candidates instead because they have the, the correct position on Israel, like someone like Cornell West or Jill Stein, for example. People are tired of these wars. The American people, especially now today, we do have uh, more social media platforms, of course. So people are very much aware of what is happening in these countries. And they're seeing images that mainstream media is not showing us, right? So people are tired of billions of dollars going towards war. People are tired of the sanctions. People are tired of American troops being sent to these countries to die for, this, for these countries. Like, for what? And what do we all get out of it in the end? There's just more dead people and you're just benefiting the military industrial complex. We just found out recently that the US and the UK actually blocked a possible peace deal with Ukraine and Russia. So what is this really all about? To me, this just seems like a scam. It seems like a money laundering scheme. And more people are starting to call that out. More people are starting to be suspicious of how our money is spent in this country. I think it's also worth noting that a, a number of people who maybe held their nose and voted for Biden over Trump in 2020 are not doing so precisely because he has been too aggressive with his immigration policy, pointing specifically to his effort, his choice to use an executive order to authorize the continuation of Trump's border wall, which, of course, was a 
um, kind of a symbol of all things bad about Trump back in 2020. But many liberals, uh, many liberals who support Joe Biden are silent about now. Many uh, more left-leaning progressive-based liberal voters of, of Joe Biden's are saying, well, why would I hold my nose and vote for you again when you're going to further so many of Trump's policies that we objected to in the first instance? I also did want to come back to something that you said, um, Robbie, about there being significant disagreement about Israel. It's worth noting again that there isn't, in fact, especially when you look at uh, Democratic voters, Biden's base voters, uh, according to a poll at the beginning of last month, um, Democrats, 76 percent of them support a ceasefire, 57 percent of independents support a ceasefire, and 49 percent of Republicans support, support a ceasefire. So there is this ongoing question of why it is that Joe Biden is so far to, I don't know if you want to call it the right, but so far um, askew from so many of his own base voters and the electorate as a whole. Right. I meant differences between Democrats and Republicans on the issue, as you point out. But, but even then, basically half of Republicans still support a ceasefire, and those are not who Joe Biden should be prioritizing, obviously, as he's seeking to get his poll numbers up. Those are people largely who are never going to vote for them. We would never look at a Republican poll and how they feel about gun control or abortion or any other thing and say, well, Biden needs to be moving to the right to get that group right. We were, we're looking at independents and Democrats who overwhelmingly uh, support a ceasefire at the very least. I want to give you uh, an opportunity to weigh in here before we wrap, Savvy. I think people just have to follow the money. Joe Biden has received the most money from the Israeli lobby than any other politician going back since 1990. So this is where a lot of this, some of his decisions in reference to supporting Israel, uh, even though the majority of voters are calling for a ceasefire, this is where a lot of this goes back to. If you follow the money, then you'll be able to see how a lot of these politicians move the way that they do and why they make the decisions that they make. So the long, the, the short story is that Joe Biden sold out a long time ago. Uh, he was never really going to advocate for American people in this country first. He was already bought and paid for. And you can see that if you look at his funding under Open Secrets. Mm. Sabrina, thank you so much for joining us here in the new year. Thank you. Some Harvard students are calling for the resignation of President Claudine Gay. Two students called for the university president to resign in a recent op-ed in the Harvard Crimson, the school paper. Now, Gay has faced increasing calls and pressure over these plagiarism allegations, as well as criticism of her response to anti-Semitism on campus. The op-ed in the Harvard Crimson wrote, University President Claudine Gay should resign. President Gay may be a good person. She may even be a praiseworthy scholar, despite these allegations. But that isn't enough to remain president, the leader of the world's foremost university must be held to a higher standard, one that Gay has unfortunately failed to meet. Reporter at the Free Beacon, Aaron Sabarium, wrote on X, Harvard President Claudine Gay hit with six additional allegations of plagiarism tonight in a complaint filed with the university, pushing the total number of allegations near 50. These are some of the most extreme and clear-cut examples yet. So there has been some movement on this since last we discussed it. Um, more allegations coming out from this reporter, Aaron Sabarium, who's been doing a lot of work on this, and some breaking of ranks, I suppose. So, so these couple students writing an op-ed in the Crimson saying that she should resign. And then also this, to my mind, pretty persuasive, um, anonymously authored um, op-ed, an additional one from someone who uh, purports to be a member of Harvard College's Honor Council and helps decide these cases and saying, uh, if this was a student, they would certainly be sanctioned for probation, um, which would be a, a very weighty consequence, according to this person. Well, that's actually you might not what tell that, me differently. That's actually not what that article says. In that piece, which is arguing in favor of 
dismissing gay, he acknowledges that only 16% of students who are adboarded, is what we call it, taken before this administrative council, um, are required to withdraw. The overwhelming majority are not forced out of school or required to take any time off whatsoever. They're I'd, put on probation. Right. I, I, I had a friend in college who was adboarded over uh, thesis plagiarism issues, graduated on time. There were, it was a first-time offense, so, so there, wasn't, there wasn't any kind of like substantive consequences for him. So it is really interesting to me that there are people calling for firing, even as they themselves cite evidence that they are ca calling for a much more significant consequence for Claudine Gay than even that which is applied to most students in this sort of a situation. I, I, well, okay, if you're just quibbling with the firing part, that's fine. Um, and I've actually not called on her to be fired. I've just said she should be held to whatever standards the students are held to. And it and what this person says is a first-time offense would result in probation, which would result in you'd be no longer in good standing, you'd be disqualified, again, if you were a student, from opportunities like fellowships and study abroad, and you have to be in good standing um, to uh, to receive a degree. Um, this person suggests that the, the number of times Claudine Gay has violated this policy um, takes her out of that range. Um, I also read the up um, the uh, editorial by the Harvard Crimson is from the you know from the paper itself. So they do not call on her to resign. They're standing by her. Um, they do say that they are very dissatisfied with how Harvard has handled this. Um, they say that threatening to sue the reporters who brought it up is a very bad look. They say that um, the investigation has not been transparent enough. And um, so, so even in their, they're kind of sticking by her, and they make several of the points you have raised about how the, you know, their dislike of the allegedly bad faithness of the people bringing up these complaints should be somehow disqualifying, which I don't uh, of them itself, which I don't obviously agree with. But um, I don't know. I think, and and on, there was also reporting that academics at Harvard privately they're afraid to speak out. So take that for what it's worth. It's interesting. But I think it should raise more yeah. serious questions. Obviously, many, many, many Harvard faculty members, very publicly on the record, have supported her. The editorial, the main editorial from the Harvard Crimson, is in support of her staying in her position, which the board already decided weeks ago was going to happen. Although we continue this media cycle. Um, I guess because what goes on administratively at the most elite university in the world is of prime importance. You uh, don't like talking about this aspect of it, but it seems obvious that the only reason we're having this conversation is because Christopher Rufo has explicitly made this a agenda. He has an agenda to um, Press no, the I'm idea happy that to there. Press aspect the idea that go, there are. Go right ahead. There are. There. There should not be basically any pro-Palestinian advocacy on these campuses, um, and anybody who defends people's free speech rights to advocate for Palestine on college campuses is characterized as anti-Semitic, as we heard in our conversation with uh, Alan Dershowitz uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So I don't think you can ignore that. The background of it, and I think a good way. I've said this before, to get around the perhaps legitimate interest in academic integrity while also not um, participating in an attack on the free speech rights of students by proxy through, uh, through Claudine Gay would be to actually do a holistic examination of all of these theses and make and, and any other allegations of plagiarism that have come up, including directed toward Alan Dershowitz, and make sure that there's a consistency in the approach. That way, you can't argue, right? If you were to do that, you could not argue that this was politically motivated in the least, because you'd be treating everybody the exact same way, and then the chips can fall where they are. I'm 
You, you talk about Claudine Gay as if she's some hero for free speech here. I mean, the Foundation no, for I Individual don't. Rights in Expression ranks Harvard uh, last or second last in terms of, of free speech rights. Maybe getting rid of her and picking someone who actually would foster a free speech culture on campus uh, would be the best thing for Harvard. Do you know how long Claudine Gay has been president of Harvard? A um, couple years. I don't know. I think it's been about a year. Um, the idea that Claudine Gay, uh, in her year at the oldest university in America, founded in 1636, is responsible for whatever that organization has determined about its free speech on campus and that firing her would cause some kind of sea change is silly. So whatever well, criticism, responsibility. She's the top person of the job. Claudine Gay is not. And they being, do a yearly ranking. They you, move it up. Minute, if let, you let me ask you: Do you think that Claudine Gay is being attacked by Christopher Rufo because she's being too restrictive of free speech on campus? What is the evidence that Claudine Gay has been restricting free speech or an advocate for limiting speech on campus? I see a figure who has very credible um, academic misconduct accusations against her. Um, whose tenure has not been marked by some dramatic improvement on the free speech landscape on the university. And then I, so then I conclude, regardless of the reasons for people coming after her, why is this person worth retaining in this position? That wasn't I just have question. to rally around her because conservatives don't that like her? That wasn't my question, Robbie. My question was, do you think that the attack on Claudine Gay from Christopher Rufo and conservatives is because she is being too limiting of free speech in this moment where the overwhelming majority of Harvard students are protesting and advocacy for Palestinians and for a ceasefire? I, Christopher Rufo is pretty—maybe we'll try to get him on the show. He's pretty forthright on what his agenda he is. is. He wants to delegitimize diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, programs in higher education, and I'm sure he would—I I don't think he would— view himself as trying to limit pro-Palestinian speech, but you probably would, and I'll let him speak for himself. How about point, we speak but... to the issue, which is Israel-Palestine, and what Christopher okay. Rufo's stated agenda is on Israel-Palestine. But that Palestine. is not the issue she's being investigated for by Harvard. But Christopher Rufo has a stated agenda of saying, we need to get these professors out who are defending Palestinian, pro-Palestinian students at these schools. That is his stated agenda. He said, he said, one down, three to go, after one um, president had to stand, step down. One down, two to go, or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. When he has a stated agenda that he is for suppressing the speech of pro-Palestinian protesters, to sit here and argue, Robbie, that it would be an advance of free speech interests at Harvard to succumb to that pogrom that he has against her, to me seems obviously backward. The administrators are the censors. The administrators are the ones who are violating so the free speech. who is Roxanne so Gay? Sorry, who's Claudine Gay censoring? Who is she censoring? What is the censorship here that is going to be alleviated when Claudine Gay is no well, longer again, president? Well, again, we go through Fired's records, but there are a number of cases that have led them to conclude that it is the most hostile campus of the 250 they rank for and free yet, expression. And yet you can't say any—give me any evidence of it, and yet we're kind of I mean, I, you do that, and then I'll do a radar tomorrow okay, with 100 right, examples Bobby, we're like, tiptoeing around. The biggest issue in the country is that Israel is firebombing Gaza. The protests at the colleges are students saying, we don't want our university to be participating in this. We want to divest from Israeli companies, and we want to put pressure on our government to stop the siege of Gaza. That's fine. They can and do that. And in the wake of that, Christopher Rufo and a bunch of conservatives like Elise Stefanik, along with a lot of liberals in Congress, have passed a resolution equating advocacy for Palestine with anti-Semitism. 
have equated anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. And my favorite Republicans have voted against that. That's not what we're talking about with what we're talking about. And her. Christopher Rufo and Elise Stefanik not only cheered that on, but then participated in this hearing. Again, a private university's choice to keep whoever they want. They can they can hire, hire a, a dog in a suit to be president of Harvard, and that is their prerogative as a private university, something that you as a libertarian purport to want to protect. Okay, that's those, fine. Those no more federal rights. funding, no more federal um, subsidies. Do what you want to do. And I hope that Michelle, and I hope that, was it Michelle Bachman, who is the, uh, a dean at a different university, who openly called for the mass killing and genocide of Palestinians, would also come under that scrutiny. But you know, guess what? She's not. Because the people who are pursuing this agenda want to shut down pro-Palestinian speech and, and people, advocacy. And the people defending her are overlooking serious no, issues Robbie. of credibility that need to be investigated more to a greater I'll, satisfaction, even I'll according to Robert Crimson, which is defending her, saying this has not been adequate. I'll say it for the second time today and probably the 15th time overall. Right. Once we haul Dershowitz before a committee, we're allowed to Not just Dershowitz, because that would be politically motivated as well. It okay. should be every single professor, if you're actually interested in, in academic integrity, then you should go back and do this kind of review. Why, what do you mean actually? Why the, wouldn't I be interested in academic integrity? Because nobody is interested in instigating and in investigating the academic integrity of any other university president. That's not true. Because those university, or any other faculty member, because those faculty members haven't become figureheads Lib for protecting the interests media of Palestinian rights. Liberal routinely exposes um, conservative political figures there uh, for plagiarism or for that kind of thing in their books. So, so, so that is, is a common thing but that Bobby, the media you're, does, you're and missing, it's fine, and it's never been— other. We're talking past each other. That is politically motivated. My argument But it's is, fine if it's legitimate. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that in this instance, and in those instances, I think it would be per perfectly fair to say in lieu of accusations that this is politically motivated and not substantive, it's always and to political. get people to invest sincerely in what I think is an important issue in investigating the integrity of academics at an institution like Harvard, which I don't know why anybody listening to this would care. There are literally over 20,000 people who have been killed in Gaza. That's Friday, Joe Biden went around Congress to issue more weapons to continue the destruction. Over 10,000 children we, have been killed in Gaza. we talked about that today. And the whole and the whole point of this is to take the conversation around that. The Palestinian students who were shot, one paralyzed uh, because of wearing okay. a Palestinian yes. and scarf. Jail for life to people who did that. And also we have a plagiarism investigation. So They're just different I, issues. I, I am inviting the viewership to look at the weight and significance of these issues, ask themselves if their lives are changed at all by what goes on in an elite institution that only admits 1,600 students or so every single year, and ask themselves if, the, if their speech interests and their substantive interests are advanced by a world where wealthy-backed Zionists can force college university presidents out of their positions for not having the kind of speech that they think should be uh, lifted up or suppressed at a university. I mean, that, like, we disagree on the political, I mean, we don't, I, I agree that it's politically motivated, but also, but keeping her is politically motivated, is part of a political agenda. Everything is politically motivated. So thus we are forced to, so that's all mutually disqualifying, and then we're forced to judge the actual accusations for themselves. I think that is what should be done in this case. And I don't think, uh, I, I don't think it's worth overlooking 
the serious accusations, don't given that them. Harvard is not is I, not some bastion of free speech I don't, I don't understand anyway. why you are so resistant to actually, I do care about academic integrity at Harvard as the person, I'm sorry, who is the only one who Harvard's academic integrity reflects on on this panel. So I, I'm happy for them to do a, a broader review. Because frankly, if I'm going to really say what my honest feelings are, I think that this kind of thing is actually extremely common, that it's used, uh, it's applied very selectively in a way that ruins a lot of people's academic careers when it's not substantive plagiarism. The, the issue with Dershowitz's pl plagiarism that um, uh, uh, was pointed out uh, by Norm Finkelstein was that he actually misrepresented the factual record in his book in a way that made an inaccurate case for why the occupation of Gaza was legitimate. Mm -hmm. That, I think, is much more substantive and a problem when you're changing numbers of how many people were killed in a Nakba or things like that. That, I think, it really undermines the scholarship. Making these kinds of, not, not changing the words enough as you attribute a quote, or as, as you like reframe, re, um, rejigger a quote in your own thing that you actually cite to, I think that you've agreed with it. This is, that is a much less um, significant kind of plagiarism. Now, it's not that it's right. We all know what the historical, uh, what the academic uh, obligations are for us in those situations to reword things so that it's not, in fact, plagiarism. And, and you should be accountable for that. But I actually think it would be very, very useful in the age of chat GPT and this kind of a a analytical software to go back and see how often this thing sort of occurs and try to figure out what our academic standards should be going forward, given that it's it's incredibly common, and we're having different standards now for what it means to write a paper, whether or not we're going to still be required to do essays now that we have all of the, this uh, technology to assist us, what we really want the focus of college to be. When I was in college in the early internet age, uh, there was a lot of discussion about how much emphasis was going to be put on rote memorization, which used to be all of college and the Harvard menu sit there and you just memorize the Latin greats or whatever. But in the age of the internet, there's a shift to applied thinking as opposed to memorization with the understanding that you can Google any fact off the internet and do I really have to remember that this painting was painted in 1805? Sorry, I was an art history minor. And I think it's worth having a conversation based on the facts of people's behavior in the past that we can now really easily get to with ChatGPT, right. whether or not we should make some reforms going forward. Now, if they do this, and Claudine Gay is the only one who has ever plagiarized in the history of Harvard, well, then maybe she deserves to have distinct criticism directed toward her. But I actually think there's a, a meaningful conversation to be here about pedagogy that extends far beyond this. And I sincerely, not just to score points in an argument, sincerely think it would be useful and good to do a more fulsome investigation here. That's fine. We investigate whoever you want. I mean, they did investigate Alan Dershowitz, and he was clear. I, I did a cursory Googling of this, as you keep bringing up. He was he was cleared. By an academic board. Think, yeah. And everyone let it go, and he got to have a great career. So right. Claudine Gay was also she cleared. She was cleared by Harvard Court. OK. She was cleared. Well, okay, but and even Harvard Crimson has a problem her. with the with the way this battle was handled. Well, no, Harvard other. Crimson voted to say that she doesn't need to be uh, wrote to say that she should not be fired. Well, I certainly don't think she should be fired without the outcome of some legitimate investigation. All right. Well, they don't think she should be fired. So I want to be really clear that the this whole segment is based on two Harvard students who wrote an op-ed dissenting from the the editorial board, uh, the Harvard Crimson editorial board, which argued that she should not be fired. You no, know, and an additional uh, opinion piece by uh, someone who does reviews for the academic yeah. integrity and the fact that there are six new plagiarism no. accusations against her. The, the basis of this, when we read it up top, we started by saying Harvard students are calling for the resignation, and then we followed up by saying, 
two students called for the university president's re re resignation and then What are you saying? There were That's updates to this story to weigh in on, given that there were three okay. articles about this in the Harvard Crimson. They're the three most well-read at the moment, and there are new plagiarism accusations. So it was worth discussing yes. again. You just said Harvard, the Harvard Crimson said, and that dramatically over uh, misrepresents what the bulk of the, of the students who write and contribute to the Harvard Crimson believe the bulk of the editorial board wrote that she should not be fired. Two people, with all, with all due respect, that's their right to do so, wrote a dissenting opinion. And there was a third anonymous op-ed that was written that we've also referenced today, in which even they acknowledge that only 16% of people who are ad-boarded actually are um, suspended in any way. Okay, but but that's a little <laughs> that's a little evasive because they say that for a first-time offense. Not 16%, but uh, a larger percentage of people would be put on probation, which is a penalty, and that what she has done is yeah, beyond I mean, that. I, I agree. Uh, Claudine Gay should not be allowed to do um, a foreign trip. What do you call it? Study abroad. Okay. <laughs> Preclude her from doing any study abroad trips uh, for the next 10 years. More rising right after this. California has become the first state in the union to give health insurance to illegal immigrants. Under the new policy, all illegal immigrants will qualify for California's version of the federal Medicaid program, Medi-Cal. Previously, those in the country illegally were barred from receiving full coverage, save for emergency and pregnancy-related aid under certain conditions. Now, the move is expected to give around 700,000 illegal immigrants between 26 and 49 eligibility for full coverage. While California expands access to care for undocumented immigrants, New York appears to be taking a more aggressive stance. Per the World Socialist website, New York City, at the behest of Democratic Mayor Eric Adams, will evict 3,500 migrant families from city-run homeless shelters in January. Adams issued an executive order in October that limited stays for migrant families to 60 days before they must leave the shelter system and reapply, with no guarantees that a place will be found for them. Single adults are limited to a 30-day stay before they must leave and reapply for housing. The move comes as Adams instituted a number of new policies designed to curb the impact of ongoing busloads of undocumented migrants getting moved from states like Texas into blue states. Here's Adams late last year. To better coordinate these arrivals today, I'm announcing an executive order requiring charter buses transporting migrants those often contracted by the state of Texas to provide 32 hours notice in advance of their arrival into New York City. To make sure we have sufficient staffing, we are also requiring that these charter buses arrive only between 8.30 a.m. and 12 p.m., Monday through Friday, and to only drop off passengers at one spot unless directed otherwise by New York City Emergency Management. Here to discuss the ongoing situation at the southern border and how various states and governors are handling this issue is Daily Caller immigration reporter Jenny Tear. Jenny, welcome back to Rising. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So how is this uh, decision to extend coverage to Ill illegal immigrants being received in the state? You know, I think one of the biggest impacts here is this pull factor that migrants that cross the southern border and even the northern border, they tend to go to states uh, that offer a lot of public resources like health care. So in this situation, 
Uh, one of the things that I think we will see is that more will come to states like California, especially because crossing the border there is a lot easier than let's say in places like Texas, uh, where we're seeing the governor there crack down on illegal crossings and allow his state authorities to go after it. I think that that has a big impact and maybe some of the traffic going through Texas will be pushed through California by the cartels and then you know, we'll see an, an, a further explosion in addition to the 700,000 uh, illegal immigrants that are going to be added to the health care coverage as the state, you know, shares that has a burden right now of a growing uh, budget deficit. They're taking on uh, even more of uh, these expenses due to uh, this program. A poll from 2021, it's the most recent one I could find, showed that 66 percent of California adults supported health care coverage for undocumented immigrants. Already, uh, health care coverage, access to Medicaid was offered to children, undocumented children in the state, uh, presumably with the belief that it would be uh, unethical and wrong for children to be dying of preventable diseases in the street in one of the richest states and the richest uh, country in the world. And uh, another point that's been made in the context of this conversation is how expensive emergency care visits are, which ultimately get subsidized by the public anyway, when people ultimately get very sick after not going to the doctor and use the emergency room, undocumented people using the emergency room, like so many poor Americans do, as their primary uh, source to get medical care. Have you looked, Jenny, at all into the cost-benefit ratios of going ahead and extending uh, health care to this population as opposed to the informal subsidization that's already going on between uh, all poor people, but in particular, uh, these undocumented people and the general public? Yeah, I think that states like California, for example, had their deficit, it was just $14 billion in June and then jumped now to $56 billion. And so the addition on that from services like this will certainly have an impact. But I think also you see this a lot at the southern border with small underfunded counties having to shoulder these hospital bills, especially when you have people crossing in really uh, inhospitable conditions, right? The heat, the elements, things like that. People having to get really quick emergency care and services. There's a hospital actually in Yuma, Arizona that uh, has unpaid bills that they're trying to get reimbursed by the federal government because they had to shoulder the burden of millions of dollars for helping these migrants that crossed into that area as well. Well, I mean, that seems like we're in a situation where we get sort of the worst of both worlds from, uh, from a, you know, public, from an accountability perspective. Um, wouldn't we want, you know, given their their illegal status is an issue because, I mean, I want um, immigrants um, working and then, you know, paying the same in uh, in taxes as their neighbors, as anyone else, paying into the social safety net, and then obviously deriving the same benefits that anyone else would get. Uh, but because they're, they're illegal and have to make, um, uh, you know, income illicitly without reporting it, again, of course, this is being done to them by the government not giving them that legal status. So, uh, so is that, you know, is that, is that difficulty explored here? Well, I think that's exactly what Eric Adams and these Democratic mayors are asking the Biden administration for is for expedited work permits. And the Biden administration has been pretty silent on that. You have to wait about six months after crossing illegally to actually obtain a permit to apply for it. So you can imagine that that is what creates the burden uh, in a lot of cases, especially in New York City, where now they're having to 
one, restrict buses arriving from Texas, and then two, kick people out of shelters. And then another thing Eric Adams has been doing is trying to, quote, reticket migrants to other areas of the country. Uh, one report by KFF showed that immigrants have lower health care expenditures than their U.S.-born counterparts as a result of lower health care access and use, although their out-of-pocket payments tend to be higher due to high uninsurance rates. And research shows that because immigrants, especially undocumented immigrants, have lower health care use, despite contributing billions of dollars in insurance premiums and taxes, they help subsidize the U.S. health care system and offset the costs of care incurred by U.S.-born citizens. What alternatives, uh, Jenny, are there to, uh, to providing health care for people who are living in this country, pregnant women, children, and the like, uh, without having people dying in the street while they await the outcome of their immigration proceedings and the like, then to extend health care to them the same way that so many um, peer nations in Europe have a universal health care system, which would extend health care to either of us if we happen to be in, say, Sweden and break our arm. Right. I think that it, it's going to continue to actually burden the system more because, as we see, like states with huge deficits are adding this to their budget. So that's something that the at least the Republicans in the state government in California have warned about for years, because this didn't just start in January when this uh, came into place. This started in 2015 when they began adding children to this program. And then now uh, they're upping that and adding, you know, all adults here. So this is something that has progressively been happening as the state continues to spend uh, more than it can, you know, uh, provide. And so that's the concern from kind of the Republican wing of the state there. Jeannie, I, I do want to get a responsive answer, though, to the question, what's the alternative in light of the fact that there are these millions of people in the country without health care, pregnant women, children and the like? Do Republicans have a plan to deal with the humanitarian implications of having millions of people living here who don't have access to health care and who rely on emergency care for their primary health care at the cost of American citizens in a backhanded and more expensive way? Sure. I think that's a big question, especially coming up in 2024. You have people like Donald Trump saying that they're going to carry out the largest deportation in history. But again, we really don't have clarification on some of these key elements of, well, how are you going to do that if you have to wait till 2031 for someone's court date, right, to fully adjudicate cases? And of course, how can you care for them within the time they're here when it comes to healthcare, like you said, and education and all these other things? I think that is definitely a big concern that I don't think Republicans have really met with uh, much, you know, policy proposals at this point. I think the conversation has been more surrounding about cutting down the closing down the border in their words and and carrying out mass deportations. Right. Something that never I mean, there are deportations taking place, um, not keeping up with the influx we have. So it doesn't you know, it strikes me as something a game that's talked about, but not lived up to when really what we need is some way to um, to resolve the, the legal statuses so that um, people getting benefits can be contributing to the social safety net and it be fair to everyone, and then have some process for people to come in legally so that we don't have the dangerous, unexpected rushing and flooding of the border that everyone seems so uh, upset by. But that would take, fortunately, bipartisan work in Congress that we're unlikely to see. Uh, Jenny Terre, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
going to see the return of the dreaded mask mandates to American life over my dead body, but some California Democrats if they get their way, masks could be making a comeback. In fact, a California congressional candidate, Joaquin Beltran, was elated after getting mask mandates reinstated in certain uh, places, medical settings in L.A. County, posting on X, we did it, mask requirements are back in healthcare settings in L.A. County as of today, December 29th. Thank you to everyone who has been tirelessly working on protecting our community for months. You made this happen. California is not the only state to reinstate mask mandates. In fact, hospitals in Illinois, Massachusetts, New York, and also Washington, D.C. have all brought back rules mandating masks for select people in medical settings. CBS News had a segment on the increase in new mask mandates. Let's watch. New year, new concerns about a spike in COVID cases. Our volume has really surged, and I attribute that to not just COVID, but influenza, RSV. I'm not seeing as many people fully immunized as in past years for flu, for COVID boosters, and so it makes them much more vulnerable. The rise in infections has prompted at least five states to reinstate masking requirements at healthcare facilities as a new variant spreads across the country. Hmm. So, look, I, I will, off the bat, I don't, masks in medical settings are probably one of the less obtrusive ways because you're actually around people who are sick. And it, I, I more object to measures being taken, like, for the whole population, for certain whole populations where you have a lot of people who are obviously not sick having to do things that are inconvenient. At least if you're showing up to a doctor's office, a lot of those people are ill, so you if you, you know, if you, I would still make it voluntary, especially because, you know, we, I mean, we can debate it, the, what the evidence, what the science says about the actual efficacy of masks, but I, I, I mean, I, and I don't know, I haven't read this order, does it require the high quality masks that, that maybe there's some evidence showing a beneficial effect to those, or is it just, if you're, wear, again, wearing any old mask, we now know that a lot of those are practically useless, so then what's the point? Especially given, uh, will certain people—I I, I know I know an older person in my life who said they would never go back to the doctor's office if they had to wear a mask again. So is it doing more harm than good to have that kind of—we uh, did it, we brought back masks attitude. Well, there are also people who are immunocompromised who say that they cannot go to doctor's offices. But they can not, wear masks. Not that they're choosing— not that they're choosing not to go, but that they cannot go because they would be made vulnerable. It is not a choice in a medical setting where you often have to take your own mask off to get medical treatment, to be examined by a doctor, to have, if you're going to a dentist, obviously you cannot be wearing a mask. If you're going to a dermatologist, you obviously cannot be wearing a mask. If you have to go to a, a, a uh, to get um, your lungs examined, to, to do those kind of breathing exercises, to get your tongue depressed, all of the ways that your mouth is implicated, your nose is implicated when you go to a doctor's office to receive treatment require you to take down that barrier of protection. So I think that this is much more akin to the kinds of laws, the rationale around uh, laws prohibiting smoking in public, which I'm sure you uh, disagreed with at the time and maybe still disagree with. But the rationale there is people who cannot protect themselves, the folks who work in bars and restaurants, don't have the option of simply opting out. So at what point is there an obligation from society to 
not force people to have some pretty, pretty serious health implications because we won't all play ball and keep the community. Well, isn't safer. that an argument for the the doctors and the nurses, not the other patients? I mean, when you're you know you're when you're being seen in an examination room, you're with the no, but it's it's you have it limited contact. You can wear that. a protective again. You can protect yourself. I mean, the, the burden should be on people to take steps to protect no, themselves, when, not expect everyone else I, to go. When along I with it. went to a cardiologist a couple of years ago, I was asked to do a, a stress test in one room, walk to another examination room, walk back and forth between these areas. This is a this is a hospital. There are a lot of people coming and going. And we also know that the more barriers that exist, the better protection that you have. If I have a high quality mask and you have a high quality mask, that's more protection than if just one of us do for obvious reasons. If there's a failure in one of our masks and one of us doesn't have a high quality mask, it seems like you are acknowledging that there is value in a high quality mask. And you point to the failures of low quality masks as a explanation for why this policy is useless. But to follow through on that logic, you would want a mandate that was more restrictive insofar as that it compelled people not to mask up, but to wear a specific kind of no, mask in public. I think the evidence Which eventually showing that, I, I think the efficacy of the strongest mask is still under dispute. I know there's some positive studies for it. There, there's none at the population level showing significant reduction of of COVID and of mortality. And I, I know the early guidance to just wear a mask, any mask being discredited makes me somewhat skeptical or suspicious that's, that we won't eventually fine, have that same attitude Look, toward even and, high And that was mask. frustrating and wrong. And we've spent three no, years no, now talking about well, how not, bad that advice yeah. was. But now, I'm sorry, but you're sitting here coughing. Everybody in my life is coughing. We all know that people are sick, and it's not just from COVID. It's from a whole cluster of things. And I observed over the holiday travel, people who, who, who I love and support, and I, I'm talking about my loved ones, I watched some of them, knowing they had colds, go and get on planes and travel without even self-masking to keep yeah. their own germs to themselves. And so I do I do worry that whatever you think about mandates, and I'm inclined to want to provide carrots rather than sticks and provide positive incentives for people to wear masks, providing free masks and the like, instead of deploying mandates. But especially in a hospital situation, we were talking about vulnerable people who might avoid care precisely because hospitals are dangerous places for folks with respiratory, uh, compromised respiratory tracts and with all these respiratory diseases going around that we should be having more of a conversation about the efficacy of these tools, which we very much do have in our, at our disposal, well, let's see and some, culturally encouraging let's people see some to keep their germs to themselves. It is very, I just, I, I'm not just, I just think it should be, I think it should be people's choice. When I flew back um, from, from the holidays, I was quite sick. I, I did, I wore a mask on the plane because I was actively coughing and I, I wish I didn't have to fly, but I had to fly. So I wore one because I was actively sick. I think taking, when you know that you're sick, taking precautions for yourself. Again, I don't know that, I don't know that it does any good. I don't know that the air filtration on the plane isn't sufficient to override anything, but I, I did it. Well, well, I, <laughs> it's we don't so know. ridiculous. But anyway, I, Sorry, I, did, I, I, I did it, but that was my choice. I don't think otherwise healthy people, it should be forced on them. And I don't think there's enough scientific evidence to override that leaving it to people. Just the same way it is with the vaccine, where there's enough of a public health deterrent. I mean, that would have to be a very high bar to clear, you know, making you um, get vaccinated. It would have to do what they actually promised, you know, stop the, the, the spread, the contagion of the disease, which it didn't well, so do. So first of all, a vaccine is an, an infinitely more significant abridgment of your bodily autonomy than a face mask. And I really, Resen I, it, it has always boggled my right. mind that the, the anti-vaccine mandate crowd 
was not more pro-mask. Obviously. Right, but that's subjective. But, Some people don't feel that but, way. Okay. And subjectively, um, getting slapped on the wrist is uh, less harmful than getting shot in the head. That's subjective. Well, I mean, no, come on. No, no, no. In injecting a foreign body into your blood is quite literally a more significant abridgment of your bodily. It is breaking your skin barrier and abridging your bodily autonomy in a way that placing a temporary covering under your mouth simply is not. That's like saying a no shoes, no shirt, no service policy at 7-Eleven is a more significant abridgment of your bodily autonomy because they force you to put a covering on your chest before you go and buy a slush. Okay, but it is because some people were going to get vaccinated anyway, and so it didn't matter to you if you made them do it, because they already did it. Whereas having to, again, not wear a mask you know, once a year if you're going to the doctor's office. I'm not pretending this is the most draconian thing ever to happen in society, but the kind of broad, you will put on a mask every time you go outside or any social setting whatsoever. Well, that I, that I did find absolutely more, right. especially because there's no legal, or let me finish, there's no, there was no legal historical um, uh, 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 precedent for making people take those kinds of draconian efforts for an unlimited amount of time. I mean, people, the public health officials talked about us doing that until we had, until we had zero COVID, which were never going to happen. All right. Look, if we're going to spend the next three to five years talking about policies from 2020 and 2021, you can have your right to do that. But right now, today in America, there is, there are a number of respiratory viruses that are spiking. Everybody that I know is sick. <laughs> including yeah. my, my, you were co sick my co too. We were I was, I was also sick. And I, feel like it is damaging and dangerous to be overly focused on policies that were overturned literally years ago as we're having a contemporary conversation about how to safeguard the health and well-being of the public. And, and to take a story about a very limited application of a mandate in a hospital, clinical, in a clinical hospital setting. Again, neither of us have read this order, but the way that they even frame it as a clinical setting in a hospital suggests to me that we're talking about treatment areas as opposed to waiting room areas. The idea that that conversation can't be had without stretching back to 2001 and talking about how wrong the CDC was to advocate for cloth masks that didn't work, I agree with you. I agree with all of that. But how much airspace has to get always taken up with that conversation instead of simply talking about whether or not this application is clinically mandated or, or scientifically or, right. or well, uh, that that health-supported? How I... Uh, how I'm likely to view the efficacy of mass and this, and we're just like I'm not disagreeing. If you are, if you are sick, I have always, from the beginning, advocated for people who are actually ill should should practice different behaviors, like staying home if you can, and if you have to go out, then absolutely consider that. I just think it should be voluntary and it should be focused on people who are actually ill. Right now, that is a lot of people, unfortunately. But I do have questions, and you know, I've read a lot of the studies. We've talked about a lot of them uh, about whether you can actually demonstrate. Um, uh, significant efficacy, even of the better mass on a on a but, population, but population level. population level stuff doesn't matter if nobody's wearing high quality masks. Yeah. When's the last time? So, so but you can't. This, nothing's stopping you from doing but it. But the studies show. Okay. We're just arguing whether. But, people are no, but this, this is important because saying masks don't work 
and then pointing to a population study where nobody was wearing the masks that work helps to convince people that masks don't work when the true and accurate thing that is supported by scientific studies that demonstrate the various capacities of different masks is that high quality masks do work. If you wear a respirator, an N95 or a KN95, you lower your odds of testing positive by 83%. That goes down to 66% for a surgical mask and 56% for a cloth mask. So even the cloth masks, they don't, they don't work nearly as well, but even it's, it's even dishonest to say that those, quote, do not work. If I were sitting here and you knew that I had COVID and was hacking up a lung, would you prefer that I be sitting here doing it right in your face or that I cover my mouth or wear a, even a cloth mask? I mean, what would you prefer common sense wise if we were sitting here and you knew that I had COVID in a cloth? I don't care. It, it would be no different Robbie. than if you had any other, if you, if you were sick. Or, or, or and a occasionally flu. we do have to and sit a next flu to each other. And a cloth. Right. And, and we are, have one of these jobs, just like in the hospital right. setting, where, where we can't help it. it. Yeah. And our makeup artist has to be exposed to us maskless, and yeah. all the people around us have to be exposed to us maskless. So there are people who are in situations where you don't have the opportunity to rely on one-way masks. But all those people, but you've just said, if it is true, and I don't know whether it is, but let's say it is true, that there, it's, 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 that finding is absolutely correct, and it's an 85% reduction for wearing that mask. That is pretty significant, yes. and you are pretty well protected then if you do that, and we don't have to put any obligation on someone else. You can just choose to do that yourself. Right, except for what we just finished talking about, Robbie, which is people like ourselves who don't have the opportunity to wear masks at work, who cannot wear a mask at work, or who have to wear, take off their mask to get clinical treatment in the very kind of hospital setting that we're talking about. Like, they, we can't make the perfect the enemy of the good. I'll tell you this. Before I started working here, I was working from home for you know, the first two years of the yeah. pandemic. I, I, I did not expose myself to COVID. I didn't get COVID, and I didn't, was ever in a situation where I was really exposed, because I, I live alone, I don't have right. to, I don't have kids, I don't have people coming in out of my house, you know, and that you can protect yourself. Well, and when I, I came mean, to the, work here, one of my biggest concerns was the exposure. And do I, frankly, do I wish we lived in a world where our, our makeup artist is very serious about COVID and is always masked with a high quality mask, and I appreciate it because she's up on our face every day <laughs> like this. I don't care, but everyone can do whatever they want. That's just, you do what makes sense for you, and that's how I want everybody to live their lives, and that's what I want public policy to reflect. But All that's right. our disagreement. All right, stick around. We have more Rising for you right after this. Show me the money, or maybe don't. The federal government plans to drop six charges against accused fraudster, convicted fraudster, Sam Bankman Freed, including a campaign finance violation and a conspiracy to commit bribery charges. Uh, charge. Now, as commentator Colin Rugg noted, Bankman Freed donated $100 million during the 2022 midterms to various groups linked to congressional leadership, including Senators Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer. While some Republicans tried to argue that Bankman Freed exclusively donated to Democrats, reporting on his political donations showed he donated to the NRCC, as well as the re-election campaigns for Maine Senator Susan Collins and Alaska Senator Liz Murkowski. Speaking of money in politics, conservative firebrand Tucker Carlson had some thoughts on the topic. Carlson had Jordan Belfort, better known as the Wolf of Wall Street, to discuss how Nancy Pelosi seems to have an uncanny ability to win at the stock market. Let's watch. It appears that members of Congress consistently beat the S&P 500 in their personal investment. Nancy Pelosi. And a lot of others. Right. And Pelosi especially. But she's the famous one. Yeah. yeah. So how does that, is Nancy Pelosi, do you think, a stock picking genius? No, she, she has to be operating on information that's non-public. Well, not, Wouldn't that say, make her a criminal? Yeah, but, you know, 
look at Joe Biden right now. I mean, <laughs> look what's going on right now. Like, yeah. this, listen. What Do you I think was, he's a good stock picker? Joe Biden? No, I think he's great at laundering money, though. Yeah, I mean, honestly. Apparently. What, from what I've seen right now, I don't get it. Like, just imagine if it was Trump who was president. Yeah. Well, every single day in the front page of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and every other publication would be like, $40,000 check for $20,000 check from his, his brother. Like, it'd be game over. Cries for impeachment. Oh, yeah. It'd be like the world falling down. He's in China's pocket. So Sam Bakeman-Fried obviously was convicted um, at trial and is awaiting sentencing on, what, fraud and a number of money laundering, uh, a few other charges, I think seven in total. Mm -hmm. But he will now not face a second trial on campaign finance violations and the implication of that being... That too many important people are implicated right. if they follow this threat. You can't do bribery in a vacuum. You can't do um, illegal political influencing in a background, uh, in, in a vacuum. Yeah. So to charge him with this is going to potentially draw in a number of people and not just from the Democratic Party. As we mentioned, there were donations from him to multiple people, but also remember his um, and I shouldn't call him his partner in crime, but his kind of co-founder uh, also was the one that kind of gave the donations to the Republican side. He gave the donations right. to the Democratic side to make it seem like they weren't all just trying to buy off the political system. Uh, and, which is actually, there, I remember some criticism from, you know, right-leaning Elon Musk kind of sympathetic Twitter accounts saying that um, he's never actually going to go down for it because it would take down too many Democrats. And that took on an excessively partisan lens because there was giving to Republicans as well. But the but there's actually a, maybe a kernel of truth to that in which it, it, it's even uh, more unlikely that he'd, he'd go down for the things that involve um, the elites at the highest levels of, of financial uh, malfeasance, uh, speaking to what, uh, what Jordan Belfort, that's the main character in that uh, Wolf of Wall Street movie, uh, was speaking to the, the stock successes that Nancy Pelosi and others have had. Remember, um, I mean, no one fought harder than her, frankly, to keep the yes. stock reforms off the table. She went to to bat for retaining the ability of members of Congress to play um, the stock market, saying, well, this is capitalism. We're a capitalist country. Of course, I'm, I'm a capitalist. I'm in support of capitalism. I don't think the people who set the rules for how capitalism should operate should be in the game, too. Like, the referees aren't playing the sport, right? They're supposed to be the 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 uh, the, the, the vigilant people. If they're, op if they're getting to operate on insider information and no one else is, that's, uh, that's a total inverse. It's totally unfair and totally wrong. And, and as he points out there, yeah. it, we know it's going on. We know the calls immediately when COVID was coming. Uh, however, a couple of them got caught, right? Uh, Republicans got caught, you know, telling your brother, oh, drop my stock in this, buy stock in, in tech, buy stock in, uh, in, in pharmaceuticals, because yeah. they, they knew it was coming before and, uh, and the markets did. And it's not did. just that they have an unfair advantage in gaming the stock market. That doesn't ultimately hurt the American people. Sure, like they're advantaging themselves mm -hmm. using their public position, but that's a much less significant crime, in my view, than the incentives that sets up for them to pursue certain kinds of policies that might not be in the broader interest of the American public, but might be in the interest of their, pay, of their pocketbook. I'm always reminded when we're talking about Nancy Pelosi and how so, she worked so hard to prevent any um, legislation that would curb this sort of behavior that Josh Howley put forward that Pelosi Act, remember that stood for, this is one of my favorite acronyms of all time, stood for Preventing Elected Leaders from Owning Securities and Investments, Pelosi. I mean, credit where credit's due. And of course, um, 
as you mentioned, she worked tooth and nail to use her ability as speaker to prevent those kinds of acts from ever getting to the floor. Now, again, this is a bipartisan issue. So I saw Glenn Greenwald, he just uh, retweeted a summary by the Unusual Wales account, which shows a full report of all the politicians trading for 2023 and how they got these enormous returns on their investment. The top um, trader with a 238.9% return is a Democrat, Brian Higgins. It's, it's, it's uh, color-coded by political affiliation. But then it's Mark Green, Republican, 122. Garrett Graves, Republican, 107. Dave Rouser, 105. Seth Moulton, uh, Democrat, 80%. And on and on and on. And you see these people beating the stock market beating the averages by orders of magnitude in ways that go largely undiscussed, uncommented upon, and unresolved, uh, precisely because we don't have a real democratic lever to do anything about it in this country. Yeah, it's, a, it's a scandal and um, something that a few members of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, keep bringing up, and we see no action on it because the incentives are just so misaligned, even though tremendous numbers of Americans of all political stripes, Republicans, Democrats, independents, um, would all agree that this is not something they want um, Congress to be engaged in. So Sam Bakerfried obviously is not getting off scot-free for his crimes by any stretch of the imagination. We're waiting for sentencing. Um, I anticipate significant jail time for for him, uh, but we will not learn, um, you know, right who's on the other side of those yeah. uh, of those transfers of that of that of the who who is being attempted to influence. I mean, we have ideas about who these people are, but we're not going to see them held accountable for it. I mean, it, and honestly, it's, it's a very different underlying substantive issue, obviously. But it, it, the the posture of this honestly is giving me flashbacks to the Epstein story that we just covered, yeah. where there can be personal accountability for the. The figurehead involved, but there does seem to be some limitations on how far we're going to follow these threads because of who could be implicated Business in it. Business as usual. And this, frankly, is much more widespread, I should hope, um, I sh you know, should think, is much more widespread uh, kind of criminality and corruption than, than what Epstein was in engaged in. <laughs> we should hope. And this, you know, <laughs> you know I caveat because yeah. you never you know. Right. Yeah. But I should hope. And, and this, in that there is still no appetite. I mean, they, they, they announced this on a Friday, again which is when you announce news that you want to bury, a Friday before a three-day weekend, hoping that the general public won't notice a choice not to prosecute this famous villain, the most mm -hmm. famous villain of the 2022-2023 uh, cycle, for the very crimes that could bring down the entire bipartisan political establishment. Yeah, of course they're not going to probe those too carefully. You know, and, and we do have been having a lot of conversations about the Biden Justice Department and corruption along, around uh, the Hunter Biden story. And the right, like. he got a shout-out there by Jordan Belfort. Yeah, and I do wish, you know, there were a lot more public attention and a lot more public pressure on yeah. politicians in both parties to actually be accountable for the ways in which the Justice Department historically works for the benefit of rich and powerful people, whether they be the president's son, the president himself, regardless of political affiliation. All you can get is extremely divisive, partisan, political witch hunts against specific individuals with it all, that always have some basis in legitimacy and are also wildly unfair and selective and part of a weaponized system, both things being true at the same time, which is why nobody's happy yeah, about them. Yeah, because look, Marjorie Taylor Greene's on this list with a 18.6% yeah. return. 
Um, Rokan is on this list with a 12.7 percent return. Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat, with a 41.1 percent return. Nancy Pelosi is like number 10, 12 down on this list. She's well, not I mean, even one were, of the top. <laughs> if they were saints, they wouldn't be in, in Congress. Yeah, unfortunately. unfortunately. That does it for us for today, but we've got so much more rising to come in the year of our Lord 2024. <laughs> what do we have? I haven't made any resolutions in particular. What are we what are we gonna do differently this year? Oof, I saw people out jogging in the freezing cold okay. uh, yesterday. Kudos to them. I uh, did so in my gym. You know, I've been <laughs> rigorously following a new workout uh, regimen for the last two, uh, two months. So I know. To, to, is, this, is this the year that it. you make your uh, Scandinavian trader very, very happy? <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. All right. <laughs> be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, be sure to look uh, uh, anywhere you listen to podcasts. We are available. We love having you as viewers. Thank you for staying with us as the new year continues, and we will see you all back here tomorrow. Goodbye.